Hello, and welcome to another segment of Let's Get It Straight. I'm Catherine West, Infection Control Consultant, and joining me today is Jim Cross, an attorney, and together we are hoping to clarify why designated officers need access to employ medical records 24-7. So the rationale for why these records are important is to establish the post-exposure needs of an employee based on whether or not they've had an illness to which they've been exposed or have been vaccinated with preventative vaccine. And this record keeping is a key component of a comprehensive exposure control plan and infection control program for your department. So you have an exposure. Well, the first thing we are asked to do is to look at the medical record to determine whether the individual is protected from the disease to which they were exposed, or if not, to identify what proper medical follow-up should be offered to that exposed employee. So what medical records are needed? You know, there seems to be out there uh, a fear that we need the whole medical record, which is what is usually kept and maintained by human resources or personnel or even occupational health. But we don't need the whole record, right? right. We need to know what childhood diseases you have had and what, if any, vaccinations you received over the years. So just to make really clear what we have stated is that the designated infection control officer does not need the employee's entire medical record. Now, another important point for clarification is that an employee, if they do not already have this information, need to request it on their behalf. This is because the records legally belong to the employee. So no one can um, ask to get the information without them being involved. So no one can request it on their behalf. They have to do it themselves, correct? That's right. And I think what we're talking about is having the DICO uh, send out a, a memo uh, to the department's uh, members uh, explaining the need for this information and uh, giving them instructions for what to do uh, about requesting this information. Okay. So it needs to be department policy now that all new hires are to be asked to bring copies of this information with them, childhood disease status, vaccination status, because the employer is now charged to review who is protected and who is not against diseases for which we have protective vaccines. 
and the employer must pay for any needed protective vaccines. Well, that brings us to our current workforce. We need to get this information from each employee if it is not already currently available. It really should be if you're using an occupational health group because they should be in tune to why uh, and what information is needed. So we could, as Jim mentioned, send out a memo expressing, expressing why uh, this information is needed and that it will be kept confidential. Now, if vaccines have been um, recognized as being needed by an employee, remember an employee has the right to decline any vaccine, but they must sign a declination form. So let's clarify declination forms. First of all, they do not remove any employee rights, for example, to work comp. They are important because they document that the employer met their obligation to offer them. So declination forms must be signed. So let's get a little bit more clarification on the need for records and what the department is required to have available and these uh, Information comes from the CDC and HICPAC. The uh, Healthcare Infection Control Practices Advisory Committee. Yes, this is an independent group that makes recommendations to the CDC after research and study, and then CDC will or will not accept them and then publish them as guidelines. And that's what happened here. So again, these should be uh, preferably computerized and readily available 24-7. And the records to include immunity status to each of the key diseases that we are currently addressing, any documented disease, whether you had chickenpox, measles, or mumps as a child, vaccination history against each of the diseases, or immunity status, if you had chickenpox, measles, mumps, then you have acquired immunity, you are protected, and you do not need vaccination. And then also to be recorded are any vaccinations during your employment uh, that are administered during your employment with your current department. Now these are being enforced by OSHA using the general duty clause. The general duty clause uh, that Kathy just referred to is from the 1970 Occupational Safety and Health Act, which established OSHA and gives OSHA, <clears throat> excuse me, a very broad legal authority uh, to uh, issue citations and fines for employers not maintaining a safe workplace. And it essentially says that if there's a hazard in the workplace that an employer knows about or should know about and there's 
some uh, way for employers to uh, address that hazard that they know about or should know about and uh, they don't uh, put that protective measure in place and, and an employee gets hurt uh, due to that, uh, they can go in and issue citations and fines. So what they're essentially saying here and in some other areas uh, on CDC guidelines is that, look, uh, CDC's laid out all this clearly to you as an employer, and we expect you to follow that. And if you don't, we're going to issue citations and fines. Uh, and they have that legal authority. Okay, thank you. So I think the next issue to clarify is our EMS and even law enforcement personnel in the definition of healthcare personnel. I can see law enforcement being questionable, not EMS, but. But they are not because they're in the definition that was just republished. Okay. So again, we go to the document immunization of healthcare personnel on page two that came out in 2011, and you will see EMS personnel are clearly listed in the definition, and I believe it's the second paragraph on that page. There is also a second reference from CDC addressing the need for access to medical records 24-7. This came about from a previous uh, measles outbreak across the country in 2008. We are now once again experiencing measles cases across the country. And this statement says that personnel place themselves and their patients at risk if they're not protected against measles and that there should be documented evidence of measles immunity readily available at their work location. So what references are there to support what we have thus far been discussing in this segment? Of course, we've talked a couple of times about the immunization of healthcare personnel document. But this is also part of National Fire Protection Association Standard 1581, the Infection Control Standard. Another reference, the OSHA Bloodborne Pathogen Regulation 1910.1030 and the compliance directive to that document, which is CPL 02-02.069. Now, the compliance directive. Which is a lot of people miss. Uh, when OSHA puts out uh, uh, standards and regulations, uh, most of them have a compliance directive that goes along with them it's essentially uh, instructions to OSHA inspectors uh, that they use uh, when they're doing inspections to determine if uh, workplaces are in compliance with the regulations uh, that give a lot more uh, uh, instructions and more uh, clarification on what the regulations mean. Uh, and I think you get a lot more context 
and specifics uh, help you understand what the regulations mean in, in terms of compliance understanding what you need to do uh, to comply uh, it's really important to have this document well and there's some differences in it from the regulation too that get missed the regulation talks about only HIV and hepatitis B but the compliance directive says you need to address hep B, hep C, HIV, and syphilis. So if you don't have this document and go through it, you can go down the wrong road uh, as far as having a compliant exposure control plan and a infection control program. So most of records are kept either in a contractual agreement with an occupational medicine group or the department's human resource department or personnel department. The reality here is those are not open 24-7. And we know <laughs> that most exposures tend to occur in the middle of the night on weekends and holidays and we wouldn't have access to this needed information because they're not open. And that is why designated officers need to be able to access the records. And once again, we wanna really stress that this information is to be kept confidential with limited access. The designated officer their backup person is essentially all that should have access to these records, correct? Yeah, that's pursuant to the uh, OSHA Bloodborne Pathogen Standards, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and that's the two key laws that, that say that, that that's confidential uh, medical information that uh, needs to be uh, not accessible to uh, anyone but the custodian of those records. Which means essentially the chief can't go in through those records well, that's either right. just because they're in charge. That's right. Okay, just for clarification. Here's a scenario that explains the importance of not only uh, being able to access the records but also to um, be very familiar with the CDC guidelines to assess what proper care and follow-up should be. A crew transported a child to the emergency department and the emergency physician diagnoses the child as having an active case of measles. It's determined that eight EMS personnel are considered to have been exposed. There are no records addressing immunity for the eight crew members. The Occupational Health Service for this department states that all eight need to have titers drawn to establish their immunity, and they charge $250 for each titer. They also stated that the eight members of the department needed to be off duty for 36 hours awaiting the test results. That meant that the eight had to be replaced at time and a half 
for the 36 hours. The total cost for following up this one exposure was $14,400. However, <laughs> it would certainly have been less costly had the department identified upfront who was not protected from measles and offered them preventative vaccine, then there would have been no exposure. Being familiar with CDC guidelines is important because they clearly state that titers don't need to be performed, that you can simply just offer the vaccine as a prevention measure. Vaccine is at a cost of roughly $70. So in that scenario, the designated infection control officer has a file for those eight employees and can reference, assuming that that program is in place, the measles vaccination status of those employees and can address that in, at the time of the exposure. Right. And so if uh, the uh, Ahmed group said, oh, well, we have to do titers and so forth, right. the designated officer could say, excuse me, yeah. but I'm familiar with right. the CDC guidelines that state this. Shouldn't we take that route? So that, that scenario just demonstrates the benefit of the program we're talking about here. Good point. To further exp express the importance of these records, what if the exposure had been to mumps instead of measles? Well, giving mumps vaccine post-exposure is not effective. So that employee would have had to go on work restriction from day 10, 12 to day 25 following the exposure event and replaced for that time frame at time and a half. So I think this is easy math to figure out recognizing who isn't protected up front and getting them vaccine, then really uh, exposures become a non-issue and cost is uh, significantly less. So clearly the department is responsible for ensuring that the exposed employee uh, in every exposure receives proper post-exposure care and counseling. That's the obligation of the employer. That's stated in the, the uh, OSHA Bloodborne Pathogen Standard uh, and the Ryan White Law. Uh, so you know, if that's not provided, the employer is subject to a citation and fine. Uh, and it's gonna be a big one uh, from OSHA that uh, not providing post-exposure follow-up uh, is uh, frowned upon big time by OSHA. So, uh, and and you can't you can't contract that away. You know, if you, if you have a, a contract with with whoever to provide post-exposure follow-up, you can't just say, well, you know, we we've got so and so to to provide that service. Well, you know, the employer is still responsible legally 
uh, despite that, uh, the employer is always responsible uh, for the employees getting proper post-exposure follow-up. Okay, and many departments do not realize that. You know, we will hear said over and over again, well, that's not my responsibility, that's the doctor's job, they're in charge. But you need to recognize that not all physicians are knowledgeable in post-exposure follow-up and what specific counseling for the type of exposure that occurred needs to be given to the employee. They're still operating as an agent for the employer, so you're still on the hook legally. Okay. So then you have the question of whether employers uh, can request, you know, whether employers have the legal right to request this information from employees on uh, their vaccination status, uh, you know, this health information uh, in general. So. The short answer is yes, but it's uh, there's some context that needs to be added to that short answer. So the context is uh, the Americans with Dis Disabilities Act uh, applies and that uh, prohibits employers from asking employees, uh, doing medical tests, uh, asking questions that uh, are designed to elicit information about disability status or uh, physical impairments, and that includes diseases and vaccinations. Uh, okay, that's the general rule, but there's exceptions to that. And one is uh, recent guidance from the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, uh, which uh, enforces uh, uh, rules uh, from the uh, uh, pursuant to the ADA and they came out with guidance that said vaccinations are not considered medical exams uh, under the ADA uh, and then more broadly such questions are permissible if they are job related and consistent with business necessity well that sounds like legalese doesn't it but what that means is if the employer has a legitimate reason to be asking for the information and they need that information, uh, for example, to maintain, maintain a safe workplace, and that connects with the bullet below uh, about maintaining a safe workplace under the gen pursuant to the general duty clause we talked about earlier, uh, then it's permissible. So the reason you're asking for this information is to maintain a safe workplace uh, and, uh, and to ensure uh, that uh, the employee themselves uh, are safe and that coworkers are safe and that patients are safe. Uh, the uh, reference uh, below is from the EEOC um, on the guidance they put out. Uh, so that's, that's the context. So what is important to remember here is that this is health care. 
This is the provision of health care right. that we are involved in. So the rules are different from the need for this information in fire suppression services. Making that transition to health care changes things. No, we're definitely talking health care. Okay. Thank you very much. So thank you, Jim, for helping out today with some of the legal aspects of our topic. And uh, we really hope we have helped bring some clarification to this topic, which we get lots of questions concerning. So thank you for your time and attention, and hopefully you will join us once again uh, for another segment of Let's Get It Straight.